Welcome back to The Compass, the sermon-based podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our Worship Matters series. Now, we would love the opportunity to meet in person. And if you live in Northwest Arkansas, you are invited to come and worship with us at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Our worship is on Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And again, we would just love the opportunity to meet face-to-face and to share with you through God's Word and worship. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is specifically looking at Job chapter 42 and sharing a message entitled, The Person We Worship. Let's listen together. Job chapter 42, it's the very last chapter of the book of Job just before getting into the Psalms. That would be page number 446 if you do not have a Bible and wish to read out of one in the book rack in front of you. Well, one last time, at least for now, let's read our theme verses together from John chapter 4. It's up here on the screen. It's from the encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well as he is clarifying to her what real worship, acceptable worship looks like to the Lord. Let's read this in unison together. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Thank you for that. Uh, Steve, I'm getting just a little bit of ringing up here, if you might bring that back just a little bit. Well, the story is told, and you've heard it before, some of you have anyway, of five blind men living in their homeland of India. And these blind men were beggars, and they were taken to the entrance to the gate of a temple where worshipers would go to worship. Now, as they were there that morning at the entrance to this temple, they encountered an elephant. Now, none of these men had ever seen an elephant, of course, None had ever been so close. And they asked permission to step up and to see the elephant only as blind men can see with their hands. And as the first blind man reached out, he touched the elephant's trunk as it moved and it curled. And he said, an elephant is like a snake. The second blind man reached out and touched the elephant's ear as it moved and as it flapped. And he said, no, an elephant is like a fan. The third blind man stepped close and put his hands out and touched one of the elephant's legs and felt the strength and the power there and the firmness. And he said, you are both wrong. An elephant is like a tree. The fourth blind man stepped forward, put both hands up on the side of the elephant and felt the size and the size of the elephant and said, an elephant is like a wall. The fifth blind man 
reached out and took hold of the elephant's tail and said, you are all wrong, an elephant is like a rope. Now, I know that when I got to that fifth man, you were waiting for the punchline, right? But the fact is, which one of these blind men was right? And that's the question. And you could say, they all were according to their limited perspective. Which one of these men were wrong? And you would have to say, they all were for the very same reason. Because of their limited perspective. And so it is with the God that we are here to worship today. If we did a survey, beginning on one side of the auditorium and going to the other side and up to the balcony and down the halls, and we're asked to write down what God is like, we would have a variety of answers. And you come here today to this corporate worship service as we talk about the person that we worship. But oftentimes in our minds, we are worshiping a God that looks very different depending on who the worshiper is. In many ways, we are too often like the blind men as we grope in spiritual blindness, tr blindness trying to make sense out of life, out of living, and out of God. You see, if the God you worship is a God who will never lay anything on you that is more than you can bear, then you are worshiping an idol, not the God of the Bible. For God often lays more on us than we could ever bear in our own strength. If you worship a God who just wants you to be happy, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. If you worship a God who is all love, who would never send anyone to hell again, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. Or on the other hand, if you are worshiping an angry God who always frowns and is never pleased, then once again, you're not worshiping the God of of the Bible. You're only seeing bits and pieces of who he really is. Now, when we began several weeks ago, this series on worship, on the fact that worship matters, we talked about the priority of worship. That's where we started. And we said that worship, now listen to me, is the most important thing in your life. And I say again, without reservation, the most important. Your worship of God and your relationship with Him is more important than your family. It's more important than your career. It's more important than your school, your ambitions, your hobbies, your games, everything else. And remember that there's two aspects of that worship. There is 
all of life worship, that all that you are and everything that you do is to be done to the honor and glory of God. We are all uh, 24 uh, 7, 365 worshipers. We all worship something all the time. But there's also altogether worship, the importance of corporate worship of God's people meeting together. Worship is a priority. The hour of worship on the Lord's Day, listen, is the most important hour of all of our weeks. The priority of worship. We talked about the path to worship. That God uses many life experiences. That nothing is wasted. That nothing is random. All of your life, all of the difficulties, all, uh, difficulties, all of the blessings, all of the valleys, all the mountaintops, that all of this is God's work in shaping you and molding you. And oftentimes the path to meaningful and true worship is a path that leads us down some very painful roads. We learned that in Jacob's life. We'll see it today in our text as well. We talked about the perspective of worship. That Hebrews 12 compares the Mount Sinai worship that was dark and foreboding. The Old Testament law that no matter how well you lived, you just could never measure up to God's expectations of worship. But now we are not Mount Sinai worshipers. We are Mount Zion worshipers. And somehow in a mystical, spiritual way that you and I cannot fully understand or see, but we must believe is that when we gather together here like this on the Lord's Day, we are joining the church, the one church in heaven and the angels, as Hebrews 12 says, in festal, joyful gathering. And the church triumphant there and the church militant here become one, that this is practice for that. But in the meantime, God hears our feeble voices mixed with those myriads of myriads of angels in heaven and saints in glory that we need to see a perspective of worship that is joyful that is uh, a tremendous privilege and we talked last week about the pattern of our worship that just like there was a pattern in the Old Testament, there's a pattern for New Testament saints. Now, it's not a specific liturgy where there's no room to bend or to move, but rather God gives us several ingredients in the New Testament that we are to uh, use in our worship service. Now, listen, listen. We are not given the liberty to be creative and make up new things to do in worship. Every time God's people did that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it led them down a road into idolatry. It's not our place to get creative and to surprise one another and try to surprise God with all the things we can come up with to do in a worship service. There's a lot of things being done today that are not prescribed by the Lord. And we have a pattern for our worship. So today, we come to the most important of all, and that is the person that we worship. Now listen, there are many wonders in the world. There are many wonders in the world. 
but there's not enough wonder among God's people. Not enough wonder. You see, every one of us came to this place today and we had thoughts. Maybe it was about, man, I missed that hour last night. I needed some more rest. Maybe I can catch up this afternoon. Perhaps your thoughts were, I can't believe it's already Sunday again. Perhaps your thoughts were, I can't believe Arkansas lost that basketball game the other night. Especially to some Aggies like some of our friends here from Texas. We come here with a lot of thoughts. To be very honest, listen to me now. We come to worship God with God's people, oftentimes very careless, with thoughts not on the Lord, thoughts not on an awe-inspiring God. I mean, how can we, when we come together, if we are seeing God for who He is, how can we ho-hum our way through a worship service Sunday after Sunday. One pastor put it this way. He said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what do you think about God today? We'll use Job as our example. I realize that's been a long introduction, and we've got a lot of points in this message. You've got to listen fast, because I've got to talk fast. And we're going to conclude this message today with a guest preacher for the last three and a half minutes of our time, okay? To understand Job chapter 42, the end of his story, and to appreciate it, we have to remember Job chapter 1 and what happened. Now, don't turn there, but listen to me for just a minute or two, then we'll get to the text. You remember in chapter 1, Job was a blameless and upright man. That means he was a man of integrity. He was a godly man. The Bible says he feared God and he turned away from evil. The Bible teaches us in chapter 1 that he was a worshiper of God who sacrificed not only for himself, but also for his family. And he did so continually and consistently. And we find in chapter 1 that God bragged on him. God bragged on him. This was a man after God's own heart. This was a man of integrity. This was the kind of Christian all of us should aspire to be. And so you would think, living a life like that, that he would be blessed immensely by God. Well, he was in many ways. But after chapter 1, we find in chapter 2 and 3 that all hell breaks loose in his life. We find that he loses his own children to death, to tragedy. He loses his wealth, his possessions, his flocks, and his herds, we find that he loses his friends who turn against him, miserable comforters they were, that he loses his own health covered from boils from head 
to toe, sitting in sackcloth and in ashes. The only relief that his flesh could find was to take a piece of broken pottery and scrape the boils until the pus flowed freely and gave him some relief. And his wife, the dearest on earth to him, coming to him in her anger and her bitterness towards God, telling him to curse God and take your own life. Get the last word in. Shake your fist in the face of God. Show him what you think. At least keep and reserve for yourself the dignity of being able to control your own death. And to that he said, Woman, you speak like the foolish women speak. In chapters 4 and 37, his friends come and seek to explain to him what God is up to. By the way, be careful about ever telling somebody else what God is up to in their lives. These were miserable comforters. Finally, in chapters 38 through 41, God answers and God begins to speak. And what God does mostly is just ask Job some questions. And then we come to chapter 42, and this is our text. Listen closely, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had, this is his testimony, listen, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and in ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's not totally the end of the story. We go on and read about how God restored blessings and wealth to Job. But what's important is the difference between Job in chapter 1 and chapter 42. Job's testimony in verse 5 was this. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye Sees you. Now go back and remember that description of Job in chapter 1. Remember that he was a blameless and upright man. That he offered sacrifices. That he feared God and he turned away from evil. And he consistently and continually followed the Lord. And that God bragged on him. That sounds like somebody that had done more than just hear of God. What he is saying is this, after what I have gone through, what I see and understand about God now is like seeing God and what I knew before is only like having heard of him. Through this painful path, he came to the place of worship and adoration and understanding of God that was so superior, so much more complete, 
so much uh, more than what he had ever known before. And I want to help you see God a little bit more clearly today. For I think that most of us are like those blind men groping around with our hands trying to understand God. And we all have maybe, uh, maybe that much understanding of what is larger than the universe. Well, I said that's a painful path. Maybe I just need to inflict some pain on you to help you see God. You see, it was the same way for Moses. Moses had seen God part the Red Sea. He had seen God do miracles in the land of Egypt. He saw God provide uh, bread from heaven for 40 years. He saw God provide water out of the rock, not once, but twice. And again and again, he provided for everything the children of Israel needed in a wilderness, in a desert. He, he wore clothes. He was wearing the same sandals when he got to Mount Pisgah on the day of his death. He was wearing when he left Egypt because God didn't let him wear out. He had seen the miracles of God. And before he died, listen to his prayer. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh, Lord, God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. How could he say that? You have only begun to show me your greatness. Well, if Moses said that after all that he had seen, I ask you, how much of God have you seen? How much do we understand Him today? I believe we need a skeleton. I'm going to give you a skeleton over the next few minutes of who God is in His attributes and in His character. Our guest preacher will add the flesh to that skeleton at the end, okay? Number one. God is sovereign before everything else and above everything else. Our God is a sovereign God. That means God's right and power. His sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. Now, to fully see that fleshed out, you've got to see his providence. You've got to read the rest of Scripture. But bottom line is this. God is sovereign. He is autonomous. He is self-governing. He is self-determining. Job testified to it in verse 2 of our text. God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That means no matter what you do, you can't do anything to change God's purposes, to thwart God's purposes. In Acts chapter 4, the first church prays, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Paul writes to Timothy and prays this prayer. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation 6, we hear the martyred saints praying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Scripture calls him an awesome God, the glorious Father, the Father of all, the God of heaven and earth, the great King, majesty on high, our sovereign Lord. Number two, he is righteous. He is righteous. That means God is perfect in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. There is no imperfection in God's character, in God's person. There is no imperfection in his acts or his dealing with humankind. We don't always understand it. We never see the whole picture and will not till we get to heaven. But God is a righteous God who makes no mistakes at all. Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 97 says, The heavens proclaim His righteousness. And all peoples see his glory. And for that reason, in Scripture, he is called the righteous one. He is called the righteous judge, our righteous father, the true God, and the way, the truth, and the life. Third, he is just. He is just. God is perfectly right in his treatment of his creatures. There is no injustice in him at all. In fact, you might say that God is a God of inflexible justice. Now, I know that raises a lot of questions. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But listen, you did not hear me say God is a fair God. As you and I use the word fair, we use it from a human perspective. And we use it by comparing ourselves with each other. Well, look what he got. I deserve that. Why didn't God give it to me? And in that respect of how you and I count fairness, God will never be a fair God. But listen to me, God is a just God. He is not fair from our perspective. If you can say that, that God has his measure of fairness, you can say that. But it does not line up with ours. He is a just God who does all things right and who shows no partiality. Again, Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. We read in Scripture that he is the just and mighty one, the judge of all the earth. Now, you're not going to hear me say that holiness is one of God's attributes. But don't, un, don't miss the point. God is a holy God. But it is his righteousness and his justice working together that create his holiness as a holy God. 
Number four, God is love. The Bible tells us that love is a core aspect of God's character, his person. It's not just something he does. It is who he is. And God's love is in no sense in conflict with his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, or his wrath. Understand, God is also a God of wrath, but his love and his wrath are not in conflict with each other. All of God's attributes are in perfect harmony. And because of his love, this same God of inflexible justice is a God of infinite mercy. Now, I know that you and I cannot fully reconcile that. But that's where faith comes in. We believe it because the Bible says so. Now, because the concept of love is so distorted in our culture today, it's important to understand the real meaning of love from God's perspective. And what better place to read from than the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, if you want to put that also into a modern-day way of speaking, it's not something that you fall into and it's not something that you can fall out of. It's not a hole in the ground that you can fall into. It's not something that comes and goes with the changing weather. Love never fails. That means it continues, it persists. And what better place than the words of the Lord? Maybe the most memorized scripture in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have everlasting life. For God so loved. I always read that word so as an idea of how much. God loves you so, so much. And he does, but that's not how the word is used. God so loved. In what manner did he love? He loved by giving his life away. And my friend, that's what true love does. And because he is love, he is called in Scripture the God of love and peace, the God of mercy, the loving God, our Prince of Peace. Number five, God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is without beginning or end. He always was and he always shall be. I remember trying to get my brain around that as a young boy. And I asked my grandfather, I asked him, Grandpa, how is it that God could have always been? 
And he answered me with a question of his own. He said, son, if God has not always been, then who created him? What was before him? And at that moment, it was official. My mind was blown. I don't understand that. God always having been. No story before that. Not created by anyone. That's why he is called the eternal one. That's why he's called our eternal father, the everlasting king in scripture. Everlasting life, everlasting father, everlasting God, everlasting light. And my favorite, he is the ancient of days. So Paul, in that prayer he shared with Timothy, said to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me move quickly. Number six, God is omniscient. Omniscient. Understand the word omni means all. Science, the second part having to do with science or knowledge. God has all knowledge. He has total knowledge in all things. There are no exceptions. He has never been surprised. He has never been caught off guard. He has never had to learn anything. He knows every beat of your heart. He knows every thought of your mind even before you think it. He knows every emotion of your heart. As someone has said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? If you want to know how thoroughly he knows you, read Psalm 139. Number seven, he is not only omniscient, he is omnipresent. He is right here in this room with us. Did you know that? He is right here in this room with us. Not because he dwells in a building made with hands as he did in the Old Testament, but because he is everywhere at once. Because if he lives in your heart, he came in this building with you today. Understand that God is everywhere all the time. You cannot escape Him. There's nowhere you can hide from Him. There is nowhere where He is not. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He is omnipresent. He is another omni. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. God has all power over all things at all times and in all ways. No exception. 
The Bible calls him the Almighty, our stronghold, our strong deliverer, our strong fortress, our strong refuge. He is our strength, our protector, and our defender. And that's why Job said in our text, I know that you can do all things. Why? Because you are omnipotent, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Number nine, he is absolute truth. The word for that is veracity. He is absolute truth. God not only tells the truth, but God is the truth. And because God is the truth, one thing that our omnipotent God cannot do is that he cannot tell a lie. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, we read these words. And Samuel said, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now listen, friends. There is no such thing as your truth versus my truth. You don't have the prerogative of having your own truth. And in our Bible studies and in our small groups, no one should ever ask you, what does this verse say to you? Because that says you can determine for yourself what it says. The question is, what does this verse say? And what will you do about that? All right. You don't have a private interpretation. Number 10, God is immutable. Immutable, that means he's unchanging. He will not mutate. He is not malleable that you can bend him and shape him and form him into what you want him to be. God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, don't be mistaken. God's methods and God's strategies have changed many times down through the years. God uses different ways to do his work at different times with different people. But understand his character and his nature. He is immutable. He is an unchanging God. In the Old Testament, we read about his laws, his civil laws for Israel. But when Israel ceased to be a viable nation, those civil laws passed away. You had his ceremonial laws about how to worship and the sacrifices and the offerings and understand those things were only a shadow of what was to come. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that. But there was God's moral law that was a reflection of who God is, the Ten Commandments and others. And understand that law still stands for you and me today. And it is unchanging. Scripture calls him the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. The faithful one. The one in whom you can always depend. Well, let me leave you in my part of that, of this, with a key truth. And the key truth is this. Of those ten attributes, characteristics of God... 
You cannot pick and choose the ones you want to acknowledge. You can't say, well, I kind of like the love, and I kind of like the omnipotence, but I'm not sure about that sovereignty and that justice business. You can't pick and choose. When you pick and choose, you are a blind man feeling the leg of an elephant and saying an elephant is like a tree. It leads you down a road of idolatry. You've got to embrace all of these truths about God. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He is just. He is eternal. He is love. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is truthful, and He is never changing. That's the God of yesterday. That's the God of today. That is the God of tomorrow. That is the person we worship. Now, there's your skeleton. I direct your attention to the screen now for a little bit of flesh added to that. In the words of a great preacher by the name of Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, as he preaches like one of only of our African-American brothers can preach. Hear these words. King of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's in endurless form. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feet. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. 
You can't out live him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah, he always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's my I wish I could preach like that. I wish you could too, Dan. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. Is he your king? Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your plans for our lives. Thank you for this church family. As we sing your praises and see these follow you in baptism, I pray that you lift our hearts and minds to you, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.